1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Public Policy. I am Tevi Troy, your host. In each episode, we look at a new book in the public policy arena and talk about its implications for our public policy deliberations and discussions. This week, we're going to be talking to a fellow New Books host, Heath Brown. His book is about presidential transitions, and it is a timely book given that we might be having a presidential transition in the next few months, depending on what happens in the upcoming election. The book is called Lobbying the New President, Interests in Transition, and I think you'll find it a fascinating book. Hope you enjoy. Heath Brown, welcome to New Books in Public Policy. Great. Thank you, Teppy. We'd like to start with our traditional opening question, which is, who are you and how did you come to write this book? Great. Uh, well, I have a varied background. I did
0: my like, graduate work at George Washington University and then took the unconventional path after a PhD, which was to actually work in policy. And so uh, I worked sort of across Washington and a couple of different policy places, but ended up uh, back in academia. And most of the research that I did uh, for this book was when I was on the faculty at Roanoke College. I'm now at Seton Hall University and teach and do research on subjects very close to this book, uh, including the intersection of interest group politics, public policy, and trying to understand the role of ideas in each one of these.
1: Since we have a very public policy-focused audience, do you want to tell us a little bit in specifics about some of the places you worked in Washington? Yeah, I'd be glad to. Um,
0: I, like many other people, came to Washington, and my very first job was working for the uh, now late Congressman Donald Payne from New Jersey. I was from New Jersey and went to work for uh, Congressman Payne, uh, doing primarily his international work, who's uh, a leader in uh the uh, Africa Subcommittee. Did you have a Ph.D. at the time? I didn't know. This was straight out of undergraduate school, and and sort of then stumbled my way through Washington. Worked uh, for the American Bus Association, worked for the Congressional budget, budget Office, and then finally ended up at the Council of Graduate School, where I worked primarily on uh, U.S. visa policy, high-skilled labor, and and uh, doing research on the trends, particularly following September 11th, about international students and scholars coming to the U.S. and findings that there were decreases in trying to understand from a policy perspective how the U.S. could have a policy on admitting students that was both safe, but also welcoming to the hundreds of thousands of students that have come here over the last couple of decades to really enhance U.S. universities.
1: Sounds like you were a fully certified Washington walk. What made you shift gears and get a Ph.D.?
0: You know, I think uh, the what you what you don't have uh, when you work in Washington is a whole lot of control over your own agenda. Uh, the people around Washington are, are uh, pursuing the mission of an organization. That mission drives what you do your research on and what you write about. And uh, as someone w- who has a Ph.D., there's also an interest in the freedom and flexibility that comes from deciding what it is that you're going to do research on. And so I came to the point where I realized If I had any hope, any uh, uh, future of being an academic, now was the time to do it, and I could always come back to Washington at some point. Uh, You have that short window of time to become an academic, and the window to to do Washington work is, is longer.
1: Your book is quite timely, especially since the, oh, regardless of who wins, there'll be some type of transition process in the November election. And I think one of the key conclusions you come up with in the book is that transitions are sh- rare, short, and private. What do you mean by that, and why does it matter? Yeah, sure. You know, one of the motivations for the
0: book was to fill this seam that existed in between the research of interest group scholars and the work of scholars of the presidency. A subfield of that is scholars of presidential transitions, and there are a handful of very well-known, very well-published scholars of that small time period. But
1: I you know uh, Fafner is one of them, but who, who are some of the other uh, ones?
0: At um, Towson State, uh, Martha Kumar is, oh, is, is is one of the well-known ones. Um, there uh, are others. John Burke, who was uh, someone who I uh, talked with and who, who mentored me and advised me on certain parts of this book, and his name shows up a lot throughout the book. Yeah, he, was, he wrote about the, in particular, has a publication on the 2000-2001 transition. So um, there is well-established research in that area, but much of that research is of the historical variety, and, and uh, political scientists of the quantitative uh, variety haven't really weighed in on the transitions, in part because of that statement that I made in the book, which is that they happen infrequently, and any time a phenomena incurs, Infrequently, political scientists struggle to figure out how to study it. And also phenomena that are inherently private are difficult to study. Um, For transitions uh, in the past have all typically happened essentially behind closed doors, not for any nefarious reasons necessarily, but because transparency wasn't just a part of it. They happened very quickly, and if you talk to people who worked on transitions, They were simply trying to make sure that on day one of the new administration, they had everything up and working. And so for that reason, scholars have had, I think, difficulty studying the transition phase in a quantitative way. My effort in the book was to try to build on the work of the scholars of both interest groups and, and uh, the transition phase but employ some of the uh, traditional political science statistical or analytical methods one of them being survey research and the other being multiple regression
1: yeah, there, there are a number of transparency requirements inside government such as the administrative procedures act and, and rules on outside commissions but those t- tend not to apply to transition so I think that is one of the other reasons why they tend to be private. Is there any Move to make them more uh, transparent and open.
0: Yeah, I think the you know the uh, for much of the time period, and, and when we when I when I think about transitions, and this is what many scholars do, we're thinking about not just the day after the election or the day after the the election is decided and the inauguration. That's sort of the most open and, and visible from the public's perspective. But there's a lot of work. A lot of the real important work happens before the election, the so-called pre-election transition. And that's a time period where you you essentially have private citizens coming together and and doing planning, and there's no reason to think that they would be covered by many of the uh, federal uh, transparency regulations and laws. These are just uh, private individuals, private citizens coming together and supporting a candidate and and speculating and planning for a possible transition. One of the things that you've seen and one of the the things that, that happened prior to the 08 transition was on the security side, and there was increasing recognition that that time period between the election and the inauguration was a potentially uh, uh, insecure time. And so, the the need to to get people up to speed and vetted uh, so that they could get security clearance and then security briefings was one of the big changes that impacted the 2008 transition. One of the one of these sort of interesting artifacts, and this is something that I mentioned in the book, is the Obama. At that point, campaign put forth a large number of individuals for this pre-election vetting so that they would be ready, if elected, to begin to get uh, security briefings. And the McCain campaign allegedly, according to researchers, uh, put together actually a very small number. And there's a lot of reasons for that. One of this is the sense that's always out there that you don't want to um, measure the drapes, count the chickens before they hatch, all of these kind of Washington myths that are out there they're myths that probably should be left in the past because they ultimately they make headlines interesting, but they don't really help the policy process, which is to get as many people ready, regardless of what happens in election.
1: Maybe they knew they were going to lose in the McCain campaign in a way it seemed kind of obvious
0: early There's, on. They, there could be a possibility of that as well.
1: So who generally pays for transitions, and does it matter who pays for the transition?
0: You know, one of the things that, that you you see is that historically... That is, prior to 1960, the transition was paid for. First, they were very small operations, so you're not talking about a lot of money, but they were paid for essentially privately, not not paid for by uh, the federal government. In the 1960s, a series of laws were passed where uh, money was um, set up to support transition activities. And so for the next, say, uh, two decades or so, It was primarily the federal government that was um, paying for a lot of the transition activities. What we've seen over the near term is that the federal government has continued to put money towards this, but private money has started to enter. And so we kind of have a return back to that pre-1960 mode where the, the split in how much money is going towards the transition is now increasingly shared by private sector donors, supporters of the elected candidate and also the federal government, and so the numbers have started to reach some sort of parity, and we would anticipate in the future if this continues in this direction, the federal piece will remain essentially what it is unless Congress passes a chance, obligates more money, but the private piece of it will likely go higher and higher and higher. That, that matters if you think that money in politics matters, and I think there's a, a case that could be made, and maybe we can get to this towards the end, about whether new legislation or amended legislation might help to make sure that the parity is there in the future
1: have you noticed in your research any difference between the transitions that were paid for in private dollars pre-1960s the ones that were paid almost fully by government dollars in the 60s and beyond and then more recently in the mixed transitions both government and private money
0: no i don't think that would be what's driving the interesting phenomena here um What I think you do see over that time period is the increasing reliance on uh, a small set of of, um, individuals and groups uh, to help plan for the transition. And the start of that, really, and I think the way I start the book is really the role that the Brookings Institution played, really, with the Kennedy uh, election. Brookings sort of was the the think tank, uh, if not the first think tank, certainly the the model on which many other think tanks were were built. The role that they played, and and we could talk about whether sort of how how serious they were about this, was essentially nonpartisan, um, essentially unbiased, um, essentially uh, scientific in its approach. Building on the progressive era, we've seen over time the role of think tanks has. Uh, increased, but the the type of think tank and certainly the level of activism has changed, and so that that really is we, people tie that to 1980 and the role that the Heritage Foundation played, and in talking to people in the 2008 transition uh, on uh, that that supported President Obama, particularly the Center for American Progress, they said they looked specifically to Heritage and the way in which they planned in 1980, and they said they recognized that there were some. Um, very, uh, There were some strengths to what Heritage did, but Heritage was no longer sort of as um, strategic in the way in which they were doing their planning. And, and uh, Center for American Progress, I think, owes a lot to Heritage, but at least they would claim built a much more contemporary, modern transition um, infrastructure that include much more public outreach and much less of the Brookings-style nonpartisanship that we saw in the past. And so... To get to sort of initial question, I don't think the we have any reason to believe right now that that split between private and public money has an effect on the transition. There are other phenomena, I think, that are much more important here.
1: Well, now we're getting into my favorite subject, which is think tanks. And so I, I loved some of the stuff you had in there about think tanks and their different roles on the transition. And I loved how you even had a scorecard from the Reagan transition of how many think tank scholars with Hoover ties versus Heritage ties versus American Enterprise Institute ties came in. And the, and the, the way the numbers worked out was, Fifty-five folks with Hoover affiliation, thirty-six folks with Heritage affiliation, and thirty folks with American Enterprise Institute affiliations came in through that that transition. Was there a an elbowing or a sort of a, a scrum among the different think tanks to see who can get in and have the most people there?
0: Yeah, I certainly think you see that in 1980. And if you if you talk to people, and and this is now uh, sort of a piece of history, and so there aren't that many people who are still active in in politics, but if you talk to people who are involved in that transition without naming names, you still get some of the, the back and forth between who was really at the center, and there are those that are not were not affiliated with heritage who claim perhaps Heritage got more credit uh, for influencing the Reagan transition? That in fact he was looking to uh, somewhat broader, if not dozens of organizations, that he was sharing uh, the the responsibility, the the influence with, with Hoover and with AEI and and some of the other groups that were well positioned at that at that time period. What you, what I think you. What I make of this role that, that think tanks play um, is how, how important ideas are to the transition phase, perhaps in a way uh, that is, um, makes it a very different phenomena than the actual campaign. And a lot of people study campaigns in part because they're so visible. The role of ideas in campaigns are important, but they're very uh, focused on those handful of salient issues that drive the campaign forward. The transition, on the other hand, is defined by ideas spread across hundreds and hundreds of individual cabinet appointments, um, positions in the subcabinet, organizational and reorganizational ideas, and around each one of those decisions, there are a host of experts, and uh, where those experts sit are typically uh, in the offices of research organizations and think tanks. And so the transition phase then is, is this abrupt change from the campaign, which is dominated by communication, advertising, and campaign finance, to a time period where it becomes really the purview of, of the experts. And the experts now sit, by and
1: large, in, in think tank. The 1980s campaign or the 1980 transition is sort of famous for its linkage to heritage and the mandate for leadership book that heritage put together. In 1992, the shift to Clinton, after 12 years of Republican rule, is famous for the uh, Progressive Policy Institute and their mandate for change book. And then 2008 is forever linked to the Center for American Progress. What was the think tank, if there was one, that really drove the 2000 transition from Clinton to Bush? In, uh,
0: you know that's that's a harder one, I think, to to really gather. You don't. Uh, there are some of the typical ones who who were very influential, and and I think Heritage played a role, and AEI played a role. But what what I I don't gather from my reading of both literature and the people that I've talked to is the um, centrality of a single group. And I, one of the reasons for this is because uh, then Governor Bush and 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 ultimately President Bush had such a um, background in Washington, that it wasn't as crucial for his campaign to have a uh, single or small number of entities. If you think about Reagan coming in 1980, uh, really from outside of Washington, certainly with a lot of connections, but not the same ones that a newly elected president in, in 2000 had. Same thing in 1992 with Bill Clinton, really coming in as an outsider, and to maybe a lesser extent, but still to some extent. Senator Obama at the time was relatively new to Washington. And I think when a elected president has fewer Washington ties, there may be this tendency to focus on a single group because um, there may be a little less confidence in the um, expertise of the campaign advisors. And so my read is that in the 2000-2001 time period, you don't get that dominant group rising to the position of influence that you got in the other uh, transitions uh, that you mentioned in 80 and 92 and, and 2008.
1: Yeah, that's consistent with my understanding of which think tank had roles and which transitions. But one other possible reason is the truncated transition in 2000. And I was talking to some folks recently who worked on the Bush transition, and they were sort of joking about how it was so truncated that the actual Bush transition was – relatively less important than what happened in Dick Cheney's basement. And I know that's a bit of an exaggeration, but but uh, but Dick Cheney was pretty involved and heavily influential in that 2000 transition.
0: Absolutely. And, and someone in his position with decades of experience doesn't need to rely on outside experts, like, let's say, the Clinton transition in 1992, where the people surrounding him hadn't been, didn't have those level of, of deep contact, the deep familiarity. They came with a new set of ideas, but perhaps not with the, the sort of the foundation that some of the top advisors for President Bush. In talking with, with, with people who were involved in 1990 and the 2000-2001 transition, the, the shortened time period also allowed for some uh, planning to happen before the election ultimately was decided. And so there was, there was activity that was going on between the election day, election night, and whatever, early December when, when the, the, the final decision was made. So there was some planning that was going on. It didn't happen in the same way as uh, the, the full uh, time period that happened in ninety two and two thousand eight. It makes it uh, funny. And this to go back to one of your original questions about them being short and infrequent. You also have all of these that are sort of really anomalies. You know, what do you make of uh, the transitions that happen um, uh, in an unprepared or on uh, you know in in uh, uh, when uh, President Ford becomes president? What do you make of that? And I tried to deal with that in the book and talk about it, but they really are hard to generalize from because they, they don't happen in the typical way. But if you eliminate those, you start to deal with a very, very small number of actual transitions that happen along the same course. And so in the book, what I tried to do is, is uh, talk a little bit about those unusual transitions, um, the transition 1988 to 1989 was another one where he said, how do you really make sense of a, a transition that's within a single party? Does it does it happen? Certainly uh, within Washington, there is major change. And when President Bush the first was elected, there were significant changes, but it didn't happen in the same way as these other times where there's a change of party.
1: One of my favorite lines from the 88 transition, and I don't remember if you had it in your book, was the unnamed transition official who told the Washington Post that in contrast to the Reagan administration the Bush folks felt we don't have ideologies we have mortgages yeah right
0: right yeah and you get these sort of these these uh, these um, people whose whose names are really made during these time periods and it's it's in some ways a very inside Washington thing because these are people who often don't go on sometimes to. Uh, positions in the administration and, and do their work on the transition. There's this, uh, in many ways, a cottage industry of people who really specialize on these kinds of things, and um, they sometimes then just leave leave and, and go back to the private sector, go back to the world of think tanks or back to universities after the transition is completed.
1: Yeah, if you think about it, the transition heads uh, going back for the last two decades, as, as I can think not people who became cabinet secretaries' They're really top-level people in, in the administration Podesta in 2008 joined the administration Clay Johnson took a personnel job but mm-hmm. he, um, but in some ways he was overshadowed by Cheney um, I'm not even sure who did the 92 one was it Al well, Uh
0: 92 was was Vernon Jordan and Warren mm-hmm. Christopher and Warren Christopher went on to an appointment at this uh, to be Secretary of State. Uh, Vernon Jordan did the other approach, which is is to do his time and then and then move back into the private sector of uh, the world of uh, law firms, and so
1: and help bring us Monica Lewinsky and, with his and, and so recommendation,
0: you, right? And you get you get all of those kind of things as well. And and in talking to some of these people, you get uh, that sense that for some, for many, working in the transition is just that is, is a way in which to leverage uh, positions. You get a lot of people in the campaign trying to line up onto a transition, hoping for that appointment which is why a lot of people discount the committees and task forces. And when you ask people, for instance, about the, the task forces that were put together in 2000, 2001, on a number of occasions, and I, and I found the list. And so I found the list by policy area, and there were dozens and dozens of names of very influential people. And I called a number of them, and a number of them literally said, what list are you talking about? And I said, well, you were on this list. You were appointed by, and they said, well, I just have to be honest with you. I don't remember ever getting called for a meeting. And it's it's one of the reasons is because that that appointment on the transition sometimes is, is a symbolic repayment for, for hard work, and it isn't much more than that. And the actual organizational stuff is done by a very small group of individuals, and there may be meetings held with the public, and there may be people invited in to give their ideas. But at the end of the day, what you're talking about is the big important decisions being made by a relatively small group influences that small group becomes really the, the, the most interesting question.
1: You suggested a couple of times that you talked to people in the course of this book. How many interviews did you do and who were some of the most interesting people you talked to?
0: Yeah, sure. And, and you know, the uh, what I'll do is na- name some of the people sort of are publicly known for some of the people. I, I offered them, you know, uh, confidentiality in, in, in that. But, Don't but, name them. <laughs> yeah, but, it, but, but leaving them aside, a lot of these people were, were more than willing to talk. And, and I think that This book would not have been possible without the um, absolute generosity and candor of people who are uh, just legends, titans in Washington. So in the Bush transition, I had the good fortune to speak with Andy Card, uh, who was just amazing in the generosity of his time. He was someone who gave me time that I, I really didn't expect. Uh, I, I spoke with Vernon Jordan and Warren. Right,
1: so let me interrupt you for a second. If you could just say Andy Card, who was chief of staff okay. under Bush.
0: Who who was uh, chief of staff uh, under Bush and also, interestingly, helped do, to do the transition out of office in 1992. And so that was sort of he had this um, dual experience of the uh, White House uh, 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 leaving office and then coming into office, and which made him a really, really interesting person uh, to speak with. I had the good fortune to speak with both. Uh, Warren Christopher who passed away I guess about a year ago who went on to become Secretary of State for Bill Clinton also Vernon Jordan who was a very close advisor to the white uh, White House the Clinton White House both of them also shared some just really interesting stories about uh, the movement between Little Rock and Washington and um, the way in which um, they tried to uh, uh, take this this what was really um, an outside Washington uh, endeavor to try to move it to Washington. I also had the chance to speak with Mac McClarty, who went on to become chief of staff for Bill Clinton. And, and speaking with people in those positions who um, you know aren't ultimately uh, appointed to—they may have a cabinet-level uh, appointment—but who are doing really the nitty-gritty of, of uh, Washington work. It's, just, it's both very interesting as a scholar, but also as just someone who's is fascinated by Washington politics. So there were people like that and others that, that um, I mentioned in the book uh, throughout um, that really did help in some uh, really amazing ways with the book. The other people that I spoke to were within the interest group community, and that's a, a big part of the book as well. And so someone like Ray Shepack at the National Governors Association, someone who I had the chance to speak with, Um, I focused a lot on transportation and criminal justice as two policy areas. Um, And so for that reason, a lot of the people that I interviewed were the heads of associations in the transportation field, uh, but also in the criminal justice field. And so I had lots of chances to speak with people who were experts on everything from Amtrak to airline deregulation and uh, uh, issues of prison reform and um, those are the people sort of the outside people that I tried to study that, why they uh, they ended up in the name of the book.
1: I'm not asking this from an ideological perspective and the ideological you shouldn't look at this through an ideological lens, but in your interviews and in your research, what do you found is better at transition? Are Republicans better at it or
0: Democrats better at it? You know, I think everyone you ask says Republicans have been better at it. And one of the reasons that people typically give is that old Reagan mantra that uh, people are policy. And it's sort of reformulated personnel's policy has been reformulated in lots of different ways. But the impression I think you get from from most people is that um, many incoming Republican administrations have been able to focus on organizational and personnel issues in a way that many incoming uh, Democratic administrations haven't. And I think that the typical critique, and I don't think this critique was made in 2008, I think the credit was given to the Obama administration that they did really a Republican oriented transition. Not again in ideology, but in uh, sort of structure. And that they had learned much more from the 1980 transition than the 1992 transition. And when you speak with people who were involved, they were giving credit, really, to how effectively uh, the Reagan team was able to focus on appointments and organizational issues and um, put secondary the uh, set of beliefs and ideas and policy changes that they might want to enact, which is not to say that incoming Republican administrations haven't initiated major policy reforms, but the critique, critique typically is that some of the Democratic transitions have been so focused, on issues of policy change, that they have overlooked some of those personnel uh, considerations and organizational decisions that ultimately have major, major policy implications.
1: Let's talk about that 2008 transition, which you say was Democrats trying to take the, the Republican model. You talk about John Podesta, who's the chair of the Center for American Progress Think Tank and also a former White House Chief of Staff under Clinton. And You say that he seems to have spearheaded appointments of major cabinet secretaries and political appointees. He funneled a lot of people from CAP into the administration, sometimes uh, to the consternation of some other think tanks who were hoping to get certain appointments. Uh, Is that an accurate portrayal of his role? And do you think his role was in any way inappropriate? You sort of suggest that maybe there's something wrong with it?
0: Well, I don't know if I would uh, go so far as, as to say inappropriate. What you have, I think, in our contemporary Time period is an organization like the Center for American Progress um, not really having a label. Um, I think there's a question of what we call CAP. What is it? It has a um, political action committee that is associated with it, which makes it not sound too much like what we think of a traditional think tank. Yet its staffing and, and certainly the majority of its resources are dominated by its 501c3 Nonprofit status. So, what what is it? Sometimes they call themselves um, an action tank or an advocacy tank, and there's all sorts of terms that are thrown around. But I think, on a you know, kind of on a, um, a scholarly level, there's a question about how we think about groups like CAP, and there are, there are others now. And for that reason, the appropriateness of, of Podesta's role is hard to really judge. Um, it's hard to Figure out uh, at what point a group like CAP is 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 really a government in in exile um, and serving that kind of role, um, or whether it's a traditional think tank where people are doing uh, nonpartisan uh, scholarly research. I think that it's hard to deny the role that Podesta played as the head of the transition, and also m- many others within CAP that were put into significant positions within the transition and then ultimately went on to appointments and primarily in the White House, but there were other positions as well. Their, uh, the centrality of their uh, of their role in the Obama transition is also ironic. And this is something I mentioned in the book because Podesta initially had been tapped by Hillary Clinton during her soon-to-be-ended campaign to run her transition. And, which also raises this, this question of whether an organization like CAP is, is really so closely tied to the party that, that thinking about it as something other than a partisan-affiliated organization is, is, is really stretching our, our imagination. I think Podesta was very central. I think many of his top deputies at CAP were very central, and they many of them still sit in the White House. Some of them have moved back to CAP. The inappropriateness of that, I think, depends on on what you think the organization actually is. If it is simply a think tank, then maybe they extended themselves too far. I think they might not describe themselves as a think tank, but more as this action or advocacy-oriented idea tank factory, Um, in which case maybe it's a little bit more understandable.
1: I think what they describe themselves on depends a little bit on the context. And this as you know, true. I have strong feelings about the, the politicization of think tanks. Do, do you see any think tanks that might be particularly important or relevant if there were to be a Romney transition?
0: This is something that I've I've written about and, and I've done a lot of writing about education policy. And if you look at the advisors that, that uh, uh, Governor Romney has put forward around education, it's not – you don't have to do too much digging to see the affiliations with the Hoover Institute. And if you look at, I think the number is something like six or seven of his 19 or so education advisors are, have some affiliation with, with Hoover and their education activities. Now this is not surprising because Hoover, um, has been at the forefront of education reform scholarship and writing, uh, for decades. And they have then not surprisingly, um, been able to provide a place for scholars to get together and write um, but I think that that would be one of the primary in the edu- area of education but the other thing that, that, that I think is, is uh, I, I tried to do in the book which is difficult to do is really to, to um, talk about the, the, the way in which a transition and, and really in any administration is different across agencies and so there may be a different think tank uh, that is central to the transition. Let's say at Veterans Affairs, that really has nothing to say about education, and the development of very niche think tanks. I think is I suspect is something that we might see over the next coming years, as as you get experts with a very small area of expertise that may not be able to position themselves as well as Heritage across government. Uh, or like the Center for American Progress across government, but can, uh, as they do during typical business, focus specifically on a subagency, on a specific cabinet appointment, or on a specific policy change. And because of the, their niche status, may never get known to the public because they're very, very small, but can provide an influence over an advice and consultation over, let's say, some subagency at the Department of Transportation that may never attract attention, uh, that the public knows very little about and never has come up in the campaign. But once the transition happens, this small yet well-positioned think tank can provide a lot of advice and and may even direct the new uh, appointment in a way that um, the public may never
1: know about. President-elect Obama instituted a no-lobbyist rule for his transition, which he mostly stuck to and a no-lobbyist rule for his administration, which used selectively stuck to. But you say in the book that John Podesta, who was heading the transition, objected to this rule and thought it was too limiting. Do you think that going forward that subsequent transitions and subsequent administrations will have to stick to this no-lobbyist approach, or they will be seen as being too cozy with lobbyists?
0: Yeah, and, and that was taken, I believe, from the Jonathan Alter book um, that came out shortly after the election. So I have to, I, I believe, that's where that um, that, that little anecdote uh, came from. And this the, was the anecdote that Podesta objected, right? Um, and and I I think that the, the the point that Podesta was trying to make is that uh, during a transition, you don't want to eliminate anyone and just because someone um, because of the role that they're playing had to um, register as a lobbyist, which could mean very little for their actual work. Because of the government regulations, you, you might potentially lose out on someone with who could be um, an absolute contribution to administration. I think that was the um, uh, administrative point that Podesta was making. That was difficult, I think, for the administration, the new administration, to, to deal with because they had made such a point during the campaign to, to demonize lobbyists and to demonize that type of outside influence. As a result, what you got was a lot of uh, delisting, uh, strategic delisting of lobbyists acknowledging or anticipating uh, a new administration that they might want an appointment to. So what you, when you talk to people, they say that these pledges that the Obama administration made actually didn't do as much as, as they claimed because people, uh, and, and I think um, Tom Daschle was one of them, had delisted as a lobbyist in advance of the uh, uh, of the transition. I think in the future, if there's a transition in 2012 or 2016 and moving forward, they will all have to, I think, adhere to kind of that uh, floor that, that has been established. And this is not, wasn't brand new to the uh, Obama transition. The push for transparency, transparency, the push for having advisors sign ethical pledges was started before this administration. They simply made a bigger deal out of it. I suspect that uh, an incoming administration uh, in the future would have to abide by many of these rules uh, that were established in 2008, often recognizing that it doesn't, in the end, do a whole lot of anything. If you really want someone in, you can ask for an exemption, and that was there were a number of people who got exemptions, and those were the very people that they wanted into the administration. So I think that, um, that those kind of transparency measures Uh, sound very good, but it doesn't take a whole lot to get around them. And I think there are some examples, uh, you know, where despite the the protestations from uh, Podesta, the people that they wanted ended up in government uh, to a great extent.
1: The position that I had in the Bush administration was Deputy Secretary of HHS, and the person who replaced me, Bill Corr, was a registered lobbyist for Tobacco Free America. Now, perhaps that is an acceptable form of lobbying because you're lobbying for kids or something like that. But nevertheless, the guy was a lobbyist, and he ended up getting the position despite the no lobbyist pledge.
0: Yeah. Ultimately, there's a confirmation process. No, not a, the not every appointment uh, appointee has to be confirmed, but the upper crust have to. And I think that for a lot of uh, a lot of people, they would be satisfied with the vetting. Uh, that's done within the appropriate Senate committee. And if the person has to be confirmed by the Senate, that's enough. And if their previous work, whether as a lobbyist or whatever it is, um, is of such questionable quality um, that it comes up in the open hearing, that they'll have to respond to those questions. And uh, tagging someone uh, with, with um, not being able to qualify for this kind of uh, government service simply because they lobbied on behalf of pro or or anti-tobacco is is, um, restricting in a way that may not really be um, all that effective as a government policy.
1: I want to get into some summary questions, some bigger picture questions that are raised by the book, but I, I want to ask you about one last detail in the book that I found surprising. You claim that Reagan was accused of delaying labor and minority picks or picks at agencies that would help labor and minorities in order to make Budgeting decisions—they are harder. Is, is what's the basis of that accusation? And do you think that's accurate?
0: Yeah, this is something that I, I cite from other research. This was um, not something based on re- uh, based on interviews or based on data collection. This is from um, scholarship that's done and, and cited in the book. But what I think this this actually was a an anecdote that was trying to illustrate was this the mantra of the Reagan transition that that people were policy and the way in which that could work was on the sort of the positive side which is to get people into place that you knew were able to advocate for and implement the agenda that you were elected on and that's most of the way personnel's policy uh, takes the form but that there were criticisms and there's another side of that which is to leave positions open or to not make appointments as quickly as, as um, maybe is as necessary as a way to stave off a uh, uh, Part of the administration, perhaps, that has an agenda that's not in line, not harmonized with the White House, and so there are there are parts of the bureaucracy that are very entrenched, and getting them to change the way they do things is very difficult. Using the appointment process to uh, have an effect on those agencies is something that uh, other scholars have written about, and I think is is consistent with this larger. Um, belief that the uh, Reagan transition had, which was that ultimately people make a very big difference in government. And if you have people that you trust and you have people that believe in the message and agenda of the president, then you can have your agenda carried forward. And if you don't get the right people in, uh, even a president with a with a large public mandate isn't going to get the job done.
1: That, that was skillfully answered, but bottom line, does your scholarship agree with or disagree with this accusation that Reagan delayed certain appointments to game the budget process? I, w- I guess I would have to punt on that because it's
0: not, it wasn't the f- really the focus. Um, I would turn to the the, the articles that were, that were sort of put forward. What I can say is that the Reagan transition very skillfully figured out how to use the budget process and consolidation on Capitol Hill to get forward many of the um, budget changes that they, they they had in mind. And that was really a part of the advice that they were given by a number of organizations that I cite in the book who really had uh, certain ideas about ways, and, and some of these come from Hoover, about ways to consolidate the budget process and in doing so uh, prevent big uh, increases in, in the federal budget. And that was very skillfully done through the Office of Management and Budget and, and gaining control over the congressional authorization process.
1: All right. Let's get to the big picture questions. Implicit in your book is some kind of distaste about interest groups trying to shape the transition process. This is a very high leverage point, and it seems to me to make sense that interest groups or lobbyists would try to get in and shape administration policy going forward. Uh, why shouldn't they try and shape the policy going forward at the transition, which seems to me a, a great starting point? Yeah, Sure.
0: You know, I think that um, what I would say is that the issue has less to do with them uh, trying to influence and more about the way in which they influence. And I think that one of the real ironies of the transition process is that whereas the campaign takes place in an ever-increasingly open and public and transparent way... uh, like or dislike the campaign finance laws, they have made reporting uh, a big part of what they do. Uh, and if, if an interest group or a political action committee uh, wants to voice their their political rights, uh, they can, but they do through these these regulations. And so, it's it's a it's a very transparent. Uh, some people might say not transparent enough, but the campaign is is an increasingly transparent phase of government. The transition, on the other hand, is a largely um, uh, opaque and, and not transparent time period. Uh, there's very few regulations that, that require a group that wants to voice its political uh, view to notify anyone. And I think there's there's t- been the tendency, the transition to happen behind closed doors in a way that is not terribly democratic. And so I would agree with you that um, it's in that every group that decides they want to write a policy brief or they want to set up a meeting with the incoming administration is absolutely both fulfilling their mission, that is, fulfilling the mission of the organization, um, and the people who are then setting up those meetings are, are doing their job. The real question that I think I have and that I was trying to raise with the book is whether the tendency to have this take place behind closed doors is uh, consistent with um, our, our sense of democracy and whether opening up the process either through new regulations that make the process more transparent um, would possibly extend the the democracy beyond just the election to the transition to the new administration. And so I, I would say that uh, the skepticism is less of the motivation of the interest groups and more of the way in which the advice and influence happens.
1: What other thing you learned from reading your book, is that transitions have become more formal and more official over the year? What do you think this means for the presidency, and this is this a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I think in certain areas this is a,
0: this is a good thing, um, that one of the real fears prior to 1960 was that transitions happen, transition happened in such an informal way. Um, the incoming administration, the incoming president was, was often on vacation during November and December, uh, that the, the people who were interested in, in um, putting in place a new agenda were really left without uh, very much to do until uh, the inauguration. As a result of that, an incoming administration often couldn't implement their agenda as they might want to. And I think as the process has become much more organized and structured, that is through organized teams and task forces, through many more staff and individuals, uh, both people from the campaign but also really experts on government. And many of those experts on government don't come from the campaign. As that's happened, an incoming administration is able to much more effectively implement their agenda in a way that maybe wasn't possible in, in the past. I think there are also issues of security, that a informal, some would say chaotic transition period simply raises national security questions that may have been uh, acceptable uh, in the first half of the 20th century, but because of the speed and globalized world that we live in is simply not, not okay in, in the start of the 21st century. And so I think that the, the, the structure that has come, the increasingly bureaucratic transition period, in fact, is, is very good for a new administration.
1: Last question, which is our signature closing question here on New Book and Public Policy. What would you do if you were czar for a day in order to carry out the lessons you learned from writing this book?
0: One of the things that I would uh, what I would do um, is to make sure that the uh, campaigns, and in 2008 there were two um, out-of-office campaigns going on. Now we have a, a sitting president is running for president. Uh, running for re-election, and a, um, someone who's who's contesting that seat. One of the things that I would do would be to make sure that the planning that was happening prior to the election was happening in a, in a very open way. And so Governor Romney just, oh, a week and a half ago named who was going to be leading his transition. If I was czar for a day, I would encourage him not simply to name the one individual who's on top, which at this point is expected, really to give a clear indication of what his pre-election transition planning uh, looks like. Now, there are, as I mentioned earlier, some reasons why uh, a candidate like Governor Romney might not want to do this, um, all of the accusations that might come. And so as czar for a day, I would both encourage uh, the the contender to be very clear about who was making the plans and how that was happening, not necessarily what those plans are, but the way in which it was happening. And I also, for, as Zar for a day, Make sure that the opposition wasn't able to go to the microphone immediately and make claims of presumptuousness, and so I would, um, and that might not be able to be done with with policy. But if those two things happened, what I think you would avoid is this charade that often goes on, where the the campaigns sort of deny that any transition planning is happening, when we all know it is happening. Uh, deny that there aren't groups that are meeting with. The, the, the unnamed transition officials before the election happens, which we know is happening. To the extent that that could be made much more open and public, I think that we would all be better for it. Once the actual transition happened, we talked about this earlier, I think that it's likely that more money is needed, that the, the current money that's set aside for the transition probably isn't keeping pace with, with the, the magnitude. And if, if the trajectory con- uh, continues along the path it's been, the two thousand either twelve or sixteen transition is likely to be even bigger in terms of the number of people. This keeps up with the size of the federal government, um, but also with really the, the the complexity of government. And so, I think that uh, there the case could be made that um, Capitol Hill could uh, uh, put more more money forward to allow for to keep up with the actual costs of transition, so that candidates didn't have to then start doing fundraising to uh, support their transition uh, at the very point at which the election ends.
1: Heath Brown, thank you for your well-researched book. I say that because you cite my book a number of times in it and also for joining us here on New Book in Public Policy. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. You've been listening to an interview with Heath Brown about his book Interests in Transition. Transitions are a recurring feature in American political life and regardless of whether we have one in the months ahead, or we don't have another one for four-plus more years. They are always something to look at in the political landscape. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Heath Brown. This is Tevi Troy for New Books in Public Policy, signing off, and until next time, keep reading.